Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Psalms of Refuge, with a message entitled Security in the Evening. So let's turn to our Bibles to Psalm chapter 4 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. It is true that sometimes things look better or more optimistic in the morning. And I say sometimes because, as we all know, that's not always the case. But as we can all testify, there are a great many times when our worries and fears and the, the threats that we face or the pain and loss that we feel, well, it feels oh so dark when the sun sets and the night settles in. It is as if the sinking of the sun also marks the sinking of our hopes. How easily we settle into gloom when we're in the deepest part of the night. I've been doing a study on the earliest psalms in our Psalter. And if you've heard my treatment of Psalm 3 yesterday, you've heard me call that psalm a prayer of confidence in the morning. Yes, sometimes the clouds don't part in the morning, but the morning can give birth to the fears of things that we must face on that day. But Psalm 4, the psalm we're going to consider today, is a psalm about gaining security in the evening when the sun has set. See, this psalm teaches us how to pray at night. Psalm 4, just like Psalm 3, has a heading that's attached to it. The heading simply says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. You know, these are basic instructions as to how to accompany the music that would allow this psalm to be sung. We might say this psalm is to be sung for evening worship. And I say that because of the last verse of this psalm. It simply says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. And so if the evening seems oppressive to you, this psalm was written to help you to sleep at night. For the godly, preparation for evening sleep is precious. Unlike Psalm 3, Psalm 4 has no introduction as to when it was written. You might remember from Psalm 3 that this psalm was written when David fled from Absalom, his son. It was written at the beginning of a civil war that would have torn the fabric of Israel's unity and of her hope in the Messiah. But Psalm 4 provides us with no context, or does it? I, I say that simply because of the words of Psalm 4 sound so similar to the words of Psalm 3. All the themes of enemies rising against David are in both Psalms. The themes of sleeping are in both Psalms. And the, the theme of salvation in God sounds so similar as well. And that's led many Bible teachers to believe that both Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 were written during the same time. The nation's facing civil war. The son is turning against his father. The question of whether David will survive his enemies is there. But Psalm 4 is meant for evening prayer and evening worship. So with that in mind, let's outline Psalm 4. Verse 1 expresses the theme of evening prayer that runs through the psalm. Then verses 2 to 5 is written to show what it is that is the difference between the godly and the enemies of the godly. See, it may seem at least for a while, and perhaps it might even be for a long while, that the enemies of Christ are stronger than Christ and his people. And if you think that, and if you feel like a perpetual victim, and if you feel vulnerable and afraid, verses 2 to 5 are written to help you gain perspective. Don't let your fears rule you. Instead, step back and get an accurate and objective perspective on the situation. And then we come to verses 6 to 8, which is a wonderful conclusion to this beautiful psalm. It speaks about good and light and joy. And of course, lying down to sleep in security and safety. So with all that as a background, let's launch into Psalm 4. Verse 1, as I've said, expresses the theme of the psalm, and it's an opening prayer. It says, 
Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now, if I'm right that this psalm also takes place while David is fleeing from Absalom, we have some understanding of the urgency of that prayer. David knows that very soon now, Absalom will mount up a very powerful army. They'll wage war against David's army, and the outcome will determine if David will remain the king and whether the hope of the coming of the Messiah is going to continue. Everything seems at stake now. And as we can imagine, in a time of much uncertainty, it's not unusual to think that David would pray, answer me when I call. But we might also imagine that Absalom and his men are also praying. And well, their prayer might be, oh God, give us victory over David so that the kingdom will slip from his grasp. So I hope you see the problem. Both sides in the upcoming battle are praying for victory on their sides. Now, how should David be assured that God's going to answer his prayer? And for that matter, when you pray and you're being hard pressed by someone else, what assurance can you have? See, I noticed that when David addresses God, he calls him God of my righteousness. Well, that phrase can also be translated as, oh, my righteous God. I hope you see the difference. Is David addressing the righteous God or is he addressing the God who is the author of David's righteousness? Well, the grammar of the Hebrew text seems to suggest the latter, that David is calling upon the God who is the author of his righteousness. Now, it would be theologically accurate, of course, to say, oh, my righteous God. I mean, God is righteous. He never acts out of any other motivation outside of his righteousness. God always does what's right, just, and good. God's never morally compromised. He's the righteous God. And in that sense, we might say, well, David's calling on God to do what's righteous in the upcoming conflict. See, but I think David is calling upon God, not on the basis that he will do what's right, but rather that God has been in work in David's life and has allowed David to act righteously. Now, just to be clear, David's not being proud. Rather, any good that David has done is the work of God. In short, David addresses God as a redeemed man. David's not saying he's sinless. You know, indeed, in Psalm 3, he's already expressed the knowledge of his own sin. David knows he's not righteous. He knows only God is. But David also is aware that God has worked righteousness through him. By God's grace, David has been acting in accordance with God's purposes. And we're reminded of that very same truth in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God has, in the hearts of all those who he has redeemed, brought about a fundamental change. And that's the heritage of the godly. God works righteousness in his people. Go back to Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And then in verse 4, the psalm says, the wicked are not so. See, they can't point to God as the God of their righteousness. Psalm 66 verse 18 says something very similar. It says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Again, make sure that you don't think that this is a claim to sinless perfection because it's not. 
And furthermore, this is not works theology. David in Psalm 4 distances himself from that. The author of any righteousness that was found in David comes from God and not from David. David takes no credit for his righteousness. But the heart of the gospel is not only that Jesus died for our sins, but also that he rose from the dead so that we would rise with him and live a new life in him. The new creation is the work of God in the redeemed. That's how David starts Psalm 4. God, you who have, through your mercy, brought about a change in my heart so that I now love your righteousness. I, who have been called righteous through you, call on to you. I'm in distress. Be gracious to me. That simply means have mercy on me. Listen to my prayer. Well, now that's the evening prayer. The shadows are growing long. The sun is setting. The darkness is settling in. And the threats that David feels are real threats. But the night has made them ever so much more ominous. Perhaps as you read Psalm 4, you're recognizing how relevant that is to your own life. Right now, you might dread the night. Night terrors stalk you. But also, you do know that God has saved you and has given you a new heart. Take that new heart and pray to God. Now then, let's get past the opening prayer. God help me. And then David expresses the difference between the people of God and those who are not. And here I'm reading verses 2 to 5. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies, Selah? But I know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent, Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Notice two descriptors of the ungodly. I will consider each one in turn. First, verse 2 asks the ungodly, How long shall my honor be turned into shame? And what is that? It's called slander. These men are trying to make an honorable man appear dishonorable. In order for David's enemies to win the day and take him down, they have resorted to slandering him. You might notice how often slander was used against Jesus. He eats with tax collectors and prostitutes, they said. Must mean he agrees with them. He says they should destroy the temple. He's probably hatching a terrorist plot. You see, slander is so very effective. That's why it's the best tool the unrighteous have. The days we have are precious, and how we use our days matter. Dr. John helps us to consider how we spend our time in ways that matter for eternity in his series, The Time of Your Life. Why is time so important? Well, it's a scarce commodity. It's uncertain how many days we have. Time can never be recovered, and our use of time can introduce either light or darkness. Paul's exhortation to the church in Ephesus is so true for us today. We should be a church longing to live as those who are wise, making the very best use of our time. This is a high calling, but a worthy calling. This month, request Dr. Newfeld's series, The Time of Your Life, on CD as our free gift to you. And to support Bible teaching with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Evil men and women are people who slander. Let me ask you, my listener, do you criticize others often? 
You spread stories meant to make them look bad. You make accusations of others to destroy them and thus get what you want. And if that is you, don't delay even for a day. Repent. Turn from your wickedness. See, here in Psalm 4, that's what David says. How long will you keep acting that way? Will this become habitual in your life? Or will it be a sin of which you repent? How long? And that's the question, isn't it? There's a vast difference between the man or woman who sins and then repents and the man or woman who simply allows a given sin to characterize them, dominate their instinctive patterns. How long? See, that question, how long, surely is the dividing line between the righteous and the wicked. How long? But then, having given the first description of the wicked, David now gives the second. How long, he asks again, will you love words of vanity and words of lies? And the first was simply a question of actions. The second is a question of the affections of the heart, the things you deeply love. There's a certain sin. It's called the sin of defamation. But as wicked as that sin is, there's one that's greater. It's the deep, inherent love of defaming others. And it's out of that love that the defamer of others operates. That was certainly true of Absalom. To one person after another, he would say, look, don't go to Jerusalem and King David for justice. You won't find any there. And then he would add, if I were king, I would make sure that horrible condition stops. And by speaking that way constantly, he won the hearts of many in Israel over to him. You know, for Absalom, the defamation of David was not in the heat of anger. See, it was repeated. It was habitual. It was ongoing. It was never ceasing, influencing more and more until he succeeded in driving David out. It was the love in his heart. See, there are some that have used defamation to throw godly pastors out of congregations. Others have had their business partner removed or a competitor destroyed. Still others have used it against their spouse, their parents, their adult children, and still others. They've brought deep harm on churches, on families, among friends, in businesses. And it rises out of a love to triumph over the other by vanquishing them through defamation. But you might ask, what if someone's really doing something wrong? I mean, should we just be silent and say nothing? No. But Jesus taught us what to do, didn't he? If someone sins against you, he says it in Matthew 18, you confront that person, just the two of you. It only becomes bigger if that individual will not repent. See, defamation works the other way around. You never confront that individual until you've convinced enough people to be on your side, and only then do you confront. Again, if this love of defamation is in your heart, and if you hear the Holy Spirit right now, you do need to repent. And if you're listening to this and driving in your car, pull over. Confess your sins now. God is against you. If you're a slanderer and you don't want God as your enemy, repent now. And then verse 3, David contrasts the slanderer with the godly. The Lord sets apart the godly for himself. He hears the godly when they cry out to him. He'll deliver them and protect them. Then we come to verse 4. Verse 4 is a, a curious verse because many Bible teachers differ on who this verse is addressed to. It says, be angry and do not sin. Well, some translate the words be angry to mean tremble. That is, for them, the word should say tremble and do not sin. And if that's the right way of translating that verse, we should think that verse 4 is still directed towards the unrighteous, those who are slandering the righteous. You better tremble before God and stop your sinning. Don't you see? You're going to stand before God's justice. Now, that translation of verse 4 is possible, but I notice that the words of Psalm 4, verse 4, are also quoted by the Apostle Paul. 
In Ephesians 4.26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And that's a verse directed at believers, the righteous. And I think that's exactly how David uses this word. He's not speaking to the slanderer now. He's speaking to the one being slandered. When you're being slandered, be angry. Because there's a reason to be angry when unrighteous people are in league with the devil. But in your anger, don't you sin. Well, how do we sin? Well, according to Paul in Ephesians 4.26, we do that if we allow the sun to go down on our anger. And what Paul means is that we allow our anger to form into a constant inner rage, never goes away. It's called bitterness. And the bitter person stops being a man of God. They stop being a man or a woman of love and charity. They rather have a heart that's embittered. And here's the question. If you've been horribly mistreated so that harm has come to you, what are you supposed to do? Notice what David says in Psalm 4, ponder in your hearts on your bed and be silent. But you might say, well, isn't the person pondering the one that's allowing themselves to become bitter? And I don't think so here. Notice that the pondering on your bed leads to an action of verse 5. David says that the one who is wronged must, out of their meditation of what has occurred, do two things. First, offer right sacrifices. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we are to set the original wrong before God in worship and to make sure that our slate is clean before God. There before God, we should remember the promises that God has made towards us. Well, you might think of Psalm 94, 12 to 15. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. See, that's but one promise. There are so many others. The counsel of David here is that the righteous need to go to God in worship, in obedience to his ordinances, and perform their spiritual obligations to God. And then David adds, put your trust in the Lord. See, that's it. Place your eyes on God rather than the circumstances. Count on God's faithfulness and settle that matter in your heart, knowing that God will care for you. Yeah, of course, it is true that sometimes we're going to wait a long time for the promises of God to be fulfilled in our lives. But God will always remain true to his promises. You trust in the Lord. Let's go to the last part of the psalm. In the first part, we had just had the opening prayer, Save me, O God. And the second part was a description of the slander that was committed and what we must do. Now, the third part are the words that the faithful must now say to God. Psalm 4, 6 to 8. There are many who say, who will show us some good. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. See, I want you to notice the theme of this section. It's joy. It's about happiness, delight, pleasure. And you might think, that's impossible. Indeed, David admits there are those who think this way. Some say, who will show us some good? That's like saying, what's the good in hoping? Things are going from bad to worse. And then, against our background of evening prayers, we've got to fight that temptation. But against that, David prays, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Notice it's night. David wants the light of God's face shine through the darkness of the night so that I might become aware of your presence. 
Then having asked God of this, David makes an observation. He says, I have more joy than my enemies have when they experience the highest joy they're capable of. See, David's enemies have joy when their grain and wine abounds. Or to put it in terms we understand, they have joy when they have an abundance of material things, money, houses, profits, business deals. They're going gangbusters. And when that happens, their faces light up in a smile. That's what they live for. And David says, my joy is much higher than that. David says, I found my joy in God. You know, think about Psalm 32, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Or Psalm 149, verse 2. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. That's it. Don't you see it? Once joy is found in God, once we find pleasure in the knowledge of the Holy One, Once the highest thing that we can possibly imagine is to stand in the presence of the one who is holy. At that point in time, we also soon see that there is no higher form of joy than joy in God. Those who slander me, says David, well, they have joy in fleeting things, but I, I have joy in God. And so as the evening prayer ends, David says, in peace will I lay down and sleep. Everything's going to be okay. My heart can find peace and rest this night. And then he adds, I know that you make me dwell in safety. And with that sense of assurance that all is well, David closes his eyes and so can we. We can find our satisfaction in the evening and sleep in peace. Thanks for your message, John. You know, John, if you're like me, in those hours that we should be sleeping, Sometimes we become overwhelmed, agitated, and sleepless, thinking about all the things that lay ahead. What can we do? Yeah, nighttime is often a time where we can feel overwhelmed with our our greatest fears. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, some of us, especially when we're under a great deal of stress, find ourselves unable to sleep. So if you're in that place and you can't sleep anyway, uh, you might want to get up and you might wander the halls and you might want to begin to pray. If you don't know what to pray, just simply pray the Lord's Prayer. Maybe, you know, get out some of the Psalms and pray them to God. Um, And uh, you will find that uh, your heart will be settled. You will know that you are in the presence of God. And it will allow you again to lay down, get the sleep you need. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Psalms of Refuge, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This month, we're encouraging you to request Dr. John's series, The Time of Your Life, as our free gift to you. As you listen and examine what the Bible has to say about how we use the time we're given, you'll be equipped and encouraged to make your days matter for eternity. Studying the Bible makes a difference. One listener wrote, my prayer for Back to the Bible Canada, God willing and God permitting, is to concentrate all efforts to affirm believers and to speak to the young generation the times we are living in demand it. As always, we're so grateful for your gifts that enable trustworthy Bible teaching to be shared day after day in your community across Canada and around the world. You sustain this ministry. To request the time of your life, 
or make a gift to support Bible teaching, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.